0: or you make decision knowing that it's an opinion-based decision that we don't have data on. Here's the great thing about opinion-based decision. It becomes data very quickly as soon as you launch it. Opinions always become data in the real world. And if our opinions are wrong, then what do we do? We course correct the fourth C. Because the opinions became data. The opinions were wrong. It's not personal. Like, we see this all the time with CEOs of major corporations, Disney thought one thing about streaming, thought this was the price. They made a strategic bet and they lost, and they course-corrected. This happens all the time at the highest courses. We have to be comfortable with making strategic bets because the data is never going to be perfect.
1: Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Yes, indeed, Fat Joe. Yes, indeed. Welcome to Run the Numbers, where I interview world-class CFOs, operators, and the investors who fund them on how to get the most out of your company's performance. This podcast is a playbook of sorts for ambitious people in the world of finance, strategy, and operations. Today, my guest is Jim Cook, a member of the founding team at Netflix, first 100 employees at Intuit, and former CFO at Mozilla Firefox. Similar to how there are personal trainers to the stars in Hollywood, Jim Cook is a renowned coach to chief financial officers throughout Silicon Valley through his company, Benchboard Advisory. As a young CFO, this was a personally impactful experience for me, as Jim takes me through a number of frameworks for decision-making and communication. On this episode, we cover the three eras of CFO requirements, the concept of disagreeing but still committing as a management team, challenging the problem, not the person, how the most valuable skill CFOs can learn is communication, but they don't teach that in school, the leadership sex talk, and that's S-E-C-S, so get your mind out of the gutter, and much more. Jim relies on real life stories from his days as a CFO and from his coaching clients who apply his frameworks every day in high stress environments. Jim is very humble about his experience, accomplishments, and skill sets. but make no mistake, I feel honored to have him grace the podcast for the second time. Enjoy this masterclass in CFO communication and strategic thinking. All this and much, much more after a short word from our sponsors. CRMs are slow, hard to configure, and overly complicated. Adio changes that. Adio is a radically new type of CRM, built specifically for the next generation of companies. It's flexible, easily configures to your unique data structure, and works for any go-to-market motion, from self-serve to sales-led. Adio automatically enriches your contacts, syncs your emails and calendars, lets you create powerful custom reports, and quickly builds intricate Zapier-style automations. Say goodbye to one-size-fits-all CRMs and outdated user experiences. With Adio, you can focus on scaling your company to the next level. Try Adio instantly at adio.com. That's A-T-T-I-O That is A-T-T-I-O The legendary Jim Cook graces the pod for the second time. Welcome back, Jim. Thanks, hey, CJ. Thanks. When you first came on, you were gracious enough to be, I think, my fourth guest. We're now 35 episodes in now. And I was looking at the stats the other day. I am a metrics guy, and you have the third most downloads of all time. I want to challenge us to get this to the most downloads ever. And I think we can do it. No pressure. Jim, your frameworks have been famously espoused by many CFOs I've talked to on this pod and off. I wanted to do a whole conversation just around frameworks because I think CFOs rely upon these in good times and bad. And it's good to feel like you have some structure when you sit down to make a hard decision. I'm going to throw a framework at you over the next hour. We'll do a couple of them. And maybe you can break it down and then we can try to do some real life examples to flesh them out. Is that cool? Sounds great. Hey, do you want to start with uh, why frameworks are successful? I
0: see you using them all the time in your Mostly Metrics blog. You and I, you have similar writing styles and frameworks, but I think they work because people remember them. So frameworks are almost a tool, like a frame of a picture for anybody to use to fill in with their own custom things. So as we go through this, I'm not a big fan of here's the framework, you must use it, Mm. right? Play by play.
1: I'm a fan of here's the concept, you must customize it. Okay. So it's not like take it out of the toolkit and just try to jam something in there.
0: No, I, I tell my clients this all the time. If you're taking what I'm giving you and using it verbatim and plugging it in, it's not going to work. And here's why. Because A, that's not how we learn. That's not how you are going to learn. Be No two business models are the same. And so it's going to have some issues. But you need to understand the concepts of a framework, why the steps are involved, and then customize it. And by doing so, you will learn more than the framework was giving to you. So in other words, we're going to offer up these frameworks today or over time. And you do it all the time. But I would really encourage everyone listening to customize it and use it. Because by doing so, you'll learn it by using it you'll customize it, and then you'll make it better. And if yeah. you
1: make it better, that's the whole goal, right? So that's why, that's why frameworks exist. I love it. So the first one we got here, the four Cs of teams. What are the four Cs, Jim? The four Cs of teams? We're, we're going there. So I made this one up. I think I've changed this over
0: time to the four Cs of team decision-making. And it's about really, why does a team exist? A team exists to do something. A team exists to make a decision. Executive team, board team your department. I stole this from Pat Lencioni's books, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, but I couldn't really remember it very well. And so here we come is the framework for me that when I started sharing it, people remembered it because it's four C's, right? The first C is you have to connect with your team. The very first thing you do, we talk about this all the time, trust, build relationships. The second C is until you connect and trust the people sitting around the table, you can't actually have healthy conflict and healthy challenge. I love to set up a challenge environment, the second seat. I talk to my teams all the time, dating back 20 years. I want you to challenge me. I want you to challenge each other. And I am going to challenge you. So as their leader, typically I was the one leader at the table. I wanted to be an equal challenger. Not the, he's the leader, and if he's challenging me, I'm going to go hide in the corner. I want people to challenge me back. I want teams to challenge each other back. But you can't challenge each other if you don't trust each other, the connection, the step one. So step one is connect. Step two is challenge with conflict. Have courage and challenge each other. And then you've got to commit, the third C. Once you challenge, eight out of 10 people are going to want to go one direction. Two out of 10 are going to want to go in another direction. But as a team, you have to commit. And those two people or three, however many, that's not going to be, it's rarely unanimous, have to disagree but commit. We've heard this before, right? And here's the fourth C, which is not in Lencioni's book, but I talk about it. I brought it in through my agile finance practices. And I talk about agile finance a lot. You will be course correcting, the fourth C. No matter what decisions you make that you committed to in step three, you will be course correcting. Why? Because we talked about this in our last podcast, that perfection is a prison, Yeah. that you're only going to be 80% right. And by definition, if you're only 80% right, then you've got to fix the other 20%. No decisions live past, you know, they have a very short shelf life, very short half-life. But great companies, great teams improve their decisions over time. So you have to do the fourth C and course correct. So there's our first framework. There you go. Dig in. Jim, can we talk about the concept of disagreeing and committing? Yeah, it's a must for a team. So Bill Campbell taught me this. He was my mentor in the early 90s before he became the trillion-dollar coach. And I really remember him saying, he called me Cookie. He's like, Cookie, he had this gravelly voice. He's coach. Cookie, it's one out of 15. It's not 15 to one. And I'm like, Bill, what are you talking about? Like, I had no idea what he was talking about. What does that mean? Well, he had 15 of his execs. He was a CEO of an Intuit sitting around the table, and he hated it when all 15 agreed because he knew they weren't digging down into the real, you know, look three steps ahead, look around every corner. If everyone's agreeing, no one's looked around the corners. No one's looking three steps ahead. No one's looking for the risks. So he'd be looking for that one person out of 15 in the room to say, yeah, I'm not sure this idea is going to work. So he'd be trying to call that person out. He knew that I was The more quiet one back then, I wasn't as comfortable in front of a group as I am now, 30 years later. But back then, I was very shy, more shy. You know, there were a bunch of other people way smarter than me in that room. But he'd call on me, go, Cookie, what do you think? And, you know, I'm not one to, when I called on to answer, and I'd always come up with the risk or whatever. And so it was fun. I learned, not fun, but I learned to look for the one person or the two or the three that disagree so everyone can make a good decision as a team. Now, those two or three people need to exist. They need to disagree with the decision. Someone's going to be right and someone's going to be wrong. He said, Bill Campbell said many times, the decision was changed by the risks that were identified by those people who are willing to speak up and challenge the second C with courage. You know, there's another C, but it belongs in that challenge bucket. It takes courage to challenge a room. But you have to set that up. And then you've got to be willing to say, okay, I set my piece, but you've got to have all oars rowing in the same direction, for sure. And so even though you may be one of the disagreeers, you've got to commit. But then you're probably one of the people that are going to come back and say, you never, ever, ever say, I told you so. Don't ever say that as a team member. But you will say, hey, maybe we should course correct this
1: decision a little bit, the four C. Jim, I, I feel like committing, even when you... Don't agree is important, but where I've seen this go wrong is in two spots and maybe you could pick these apart. The first one is someone says, I'm going to disagree and commit because it's in vogue to say that, but then they try to undermine it after the decision is made. And I think that erodes trust, one of the first things you hit on. And then the second thing is I have unfortunately been around some execs in my career where just disagreeing and being a critic and throwing stones of why something doesn't work is kind of how they made their career. They're, they're this intellectual who always tell you why it doesn't work and pointing that out and like that's what they hang their hat on. I just feel like I, I try to balance that in my head of when disagreeing is important to go with versus is this person just either disagreeing and committing and they don't actually believe in it? Or is this person disagreeing just because that's what their brand is built upon, being the smart person who tells me why this won't work? So both those personalities, you have to stamp out of that team. And when I say
0: stamp out, you don't stamp the people out. But now you're really unpacking team dynamics. The first personality you describe is a passive-aggressive personality that's just going to go along even though they don't believe it and not going to support it you have to lead with team values above all these four C's. You have to be like, these are our values. We will not be passive aggressive and we will not just be cynics. We're not going to be perfect, but we have to make the best decisions as a team. Not all of us are going to agree. You have to, you have to really set this up, up front with your team and yeah. be very vulnerable about this. And if those behaviors creep in, which are human behaviors, you've got to call them out and say, not acceptable. You really have to be the leader and say, look. This is going to happen. I'm going to predict it. If you're that person, we're going to have a conversation one-on-one. And anybody should be willing to have that one-on-one conversation and call their own team members out. But I, as the leader, will call you out on that. Bill Campbell called people out, his execs on that all the time. And a few execs got fired as a result of that behavior. Very, very rarely written about, but I saw it personally.
1: He warned them once, he warned them twice, and the third time he fired them, even though they're very valuable. And just to be vulnerable, I have messed that up in the past where I've said, and I, I realize it now, I'm labeling it, that I would say, I'm going to disagree and commit on this. And two weeks later, I was like, eh, you know what? I don't really feel that way anymore. Well, let's let's unpack this a little bit more. Right? Yeah.
0: Let's unpack what we're challenging in the second C. We're challenging the assumptions. We're challenging the data. We never, ever challenge the person. Do not challenge people because then people get their hackles up. They get defensive. Right. They they, they put a defensive posture in the corner. Many people haven't been brought up very well, and they like to yell and challenge and make everything personal, especially in this environment around the United States. When we can learn to challenge assumptions, when we can learn to challenge data, when we can learn to challenge opinions with your own opinions, then you're not challenging the person. You're just challenging data, assumptions, or opinions. But here's the beautiful thing: you make decisions either based on the best data available, or you make decision knowing that it's an opinion-based decision that we don't have data on. Here's the great thing about opinion-based decision: it becomes data very quickly as soon as you launch it. Opinions always become data in the real world, and if our opinions are wrong, then what do we do? The fourth seat, we course correct, because the opinions became data. The opinions were wrong. It's not personal. Like we see this all the time with CEOs of major corporations. Disney thought one thing about streaming, thought this was the price. They made a strategic bet and they lost and they course corrected. This happens all the time at the highest courses. We have to be comfortable with making strategic bets because the
1: data is never going to be perfect. Opinions become data. That's a soundbite right there. And it's so true because you do put something out into the world and then you do collect data on it. Eventually it was your hypothesis. It was your opinion. You try it and then course correct. But if you can lead with those opinions and be willing to be challenged
0: with your opinions, yeah. then you have a true team. And you tell people, this is my opinion. I have no data on this. This is my instinct. Perfectly fine. But you know, the sound bite maybe is there are database decisions and there are opinion based decisions. Just know which one you're making and then be willing to course correct
1: either, quite frankly, because the data could also be wrong. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. As a SaaS CFO, I know firsthand how difficult it is to report on SaaS metrics. We've all seen a deal close at the end of the month, but the customer's contract doesn't actually start until the middle of the next month, creating the classic discrepancy between bookings or committed ARR and actual ARR, the real stuff. That's why I'm so pumped to be partnering with Maxio, a company trusted by thousands of SaaS companies to understand these reporting nuances. They basically built and automated the SaaS dashboard I tried to manually cobble together for three years. In 2022, SaaS Optics and Chargeify combined to become Maxio, the only billing and financial operations platform that was purpose-built for B2B SaaS. They're helping SaaS finance teams automate billing and revrec, manage collections and payments, and put together investor-grade reporting packages. Visit maxio.com slash run the numbers to learn how Maxio can help you supercharge financial operations in 2024. Request a demo using the run the numbers link and receive a 10% discount on your first year with Maxio. That's maxio.com forward slash run the numbers. Well, you know what I always say, maintaining compliance is never complete, which is why most security and IT teams feel like they're always in audit purgatory. I'm there right now. But there is a solution, and it's easier than you think. Escape the infinite loop by using Theropass' compliance and audit solution. Theropass is the only solution using AI infused technology and in house auditors to take your team from start to stamp without leaving the platform. As a winner of multiple G2 awards, including top awards for usability and service, your team is in good hands with Theropass. From onboarding with dedicated experts, to audits from in-house auditors who know every aspect of your framework needs. You can have complete confidence in your ThoroughPass compliance journey. ThoroughPass is the only solution to offer audits for your most needed security frameworks. I'm talking HIPAA to HITRUST and SOC2 to ISO 27001. Woo! If you need PCI, DSS, pen tests, or any other major compliance framework, ThoroughPass can hook you up. With ThoroughPass, you never need to worry again. Relax, we fix audits. Find more at ThoroughPass.com. That's T H O R O P A S S.com. Tell me boy CJ sent you. They'll hook you up. Boom. I heard this stat Jim that most CFOs leave their positions not because of relationships or headbutting with their CEO, but with their peers. How do you coach people on separating the problem at hand from the individual, because there are a lot of strong personalities in the C-suite. And I've fallen victim to this sometimes too, where there is a problem, but I may also not really get along with the person. And instead of focusing on the problem, which is true, it is relevant, I get too wrapped up in like, I don't know, maybe it's, do you respect this person? Do you get value out of their work? Do you feel respected by them? How do you coach people on how to separate those two things?
0: Now we're getting in kind of leadership and leading with why, another one of my frameworks is leading with powerful questions and leading with why, because CFOs sit in a very unique position of having all the data in the company, having all the insights in the company, and seeing a lot of the assumptions where they go right and where they go wrong. Yeah, you know know what went right and what went wrong faster than anybody else. You are the only one that sits at what I call the unique intersection of insights. Mm. You sit at a unique intersection of insights and all the activity comes into one central location. Now, what we're not typically great at as CFOs is communicating that back respectfully yeah, or without being a police person. But this is where you have to then challenge the assumptions, challenge the opinions, challenge the data, challenge the metric, and just be okay. Like, hey, we're all going to make decisions. It's not personal, but the more you can lead with data, lead with questions, lead with challenging the assumptions, and you can make almost a game out of it in which you're not in the minute becomes personal, you know, like I'm human. My hackles get up and someone says something to me. I've worked on this for years, but the minute that signal goes up, like I'm getting personal about it, or I'm challenged this person personally, I then revert back to, okay, Jim, stop. Challenge the assumptions, challenge the data. Don't challenge the person. And when you can take that higher road, all of a sudden, you know, the respect in the room stays pretty even. I've caught myself
1: spiraling in that direction a couple of times. So it's it's well, uh, listen for the signal. But you know,
0: now we're getting into how I coach my clients. But but listen for the signal. If you okay. catch yourself tensing up, you're getting in a fight. That's the signal, your personal data signal, that you're doing it wrong that you're not challenging assumptions, you're challenging the person, that you're not leading with data. See, we're great at leading with data, but we don't know how to communicate that. And so we communicate it with, you're wrong. No, you are wrong. The assumption was wrong. You just have to change your language. And it right. really, really is hard for most people in our role, CFOs who come up with numbers and math, and we got graded SAT scores, to actually realize that language is the most important thing
1: how we use our language, how we speak our language to influence people is the most important thing. I used to work with this great FPNA leader, Dom Fucilio, shout out Dom. He's uh, now at SailPoint, I believe, leading their team. And he used to say, like, sometimes I'll catch myself in these debates with like CROs or heads of marketing or heads of sales. And I say to them, listen, man, like your weapons are words. You are going to beat me on this field every time. My only weapon that I have is data. I'm going to present it to you, but I can't get into like a debate using these qualitative like ways of coming at it because you're going to beat me every time. All I can show you is the data, and that's the sharpest weapon I have. Until you get better at your leadership, yeah, yeah. Point. Until I get 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 that skill up over time. Yeah.
0: So that's another. That's another one of my frameworks is is how to have better leadership language. I just did this uh, great dinner event with Jeff Epstein. You might have seen it on LinkedIn with the mm-hmm. people in the room. That that was the entire topic was how to communicate better, how to use better language. Because we're not typically language people. I think I got 760 on my SATs and 540 on my verbal when I was 18. It was bad, right? So I think most of us may be like that. Maybe not. We're not typically great with language. But when you can work on your language, because you don't need to work on the math anymore, then you can increase your leadership skills. Jim, I've got a number of other frameworks written down here. You want to pick one. One of the things I've been talking about recently is the three eras of a CFO. See, I've been around thirty years. I've been through three decades, and I've seen three eras. Maybe other people haven't seen them. If we redial the clock back, and this is going to go into these frameworks almost one by one, If yeah. we redial the clock back to like the year two thousand, when you know to two thousand ten. What I remember hearing, at least for those who were around, many weren't around, is. An executive CFOs or directors of VPs of finance. But if you were, the one mantra we would have is get out of the back room. You know, everyone yeah. in a CFO role or a head of finance was in the, a back room CFO, and we want you to own the numbers. So all we heard for like five or 10 years was you need to own the numbers. You need to own the model. Here's the problem ownership without you know, accountability or ownership without control if I'm going to own the numbers and I've got to hit my guidance that I've got to tell people what to do, because if I'm owning the numbers and I'm being told then I'm going to become more of a corporate policeman. And so that was the tension with that era. The second era was, and I'm not even going to put dates on it, but the second era of a CFO was, okay, now that you own the model and you're more leading us with the model and and the numbers, you have to be a strategic partner to the CEO and to the board. You have to step out and now be more strategic. We heard that, Definitely. That's true. Those are two legs of this stool that are critical. The third one is now we need you to be a leader for the company and we need you to be a leader of culture and to really influence the org more and to create better impact through influence. I'm going to just wrap that all up in a communication. Here's the problem with the second era, the second era of being a more strategic partner, what does strategy require CJ? What does being a good
1: strategist require? I think you have to know the full picture and have context. And you also need to know what levers you're able to pull. It can't just be on a piece of paper and it can't just be numbers. But then once
0: you know that, you have to be able to communicate it effectively. Any great strategy person, CEOs are great at strategy. CROs, CMOs are great at strategy. They have to use their
1: verbal skills and influence people and communicate it effectively. It's so funny you say that because it's like a product is nothing without distribution. It's a strategy is nothing without communication.
0: Bingo. That's exactly where I was going. So you can own the numbers. You can be a great strategic CFO, which we've all been trying to be. And without communication, you're not going to be successful. Without properly communicating and speaking the language of the people you're trying to influence. So let's take them one at a time, right? The five ownership steps. Let's start with ownership. What I learned over the ownership era, and it took me a while to learn it was in order to own something, step one, you have to lead with a very clear point of view. Very clear, you have to lead with the end in mind, and many of us are doing this now, the desired outcome, and work backwards. Are you saying an
1: opinion, or is that different?
0: No, the, owning anything. Owning anything, like if I'm going to own something or make a decision, right, and and be the owner of that decision, I have to lead with a very clear point of view. Of where it's going, Okay. It can either be data or an opinion. It could be either, but you have to lead with it. You have to be outcome-driven. But you have to communicate your point of view from the CFO seat. Okay. And many of us forget that we have to communicate our point of view. I know know it sounds obvious. The second thing you have to do is diagnose the root cause of the problem. Now, if that's where we're going, what's keeping us from getting us there are these roadblocks in the way of our journey. Then you have to design and recommend solutions as part of this Five Steps to Ownership. You have to say, we're going to unblock these things. You then challenge assumptions. People are going to say, well, we can't do that. You have to really get people out of their own way and challenge, challenge, challenge. You got to course correct, right? And you're going to have to make lots of detours. If it's a journey that you're on, you talk about this in your blog post. Others do as well. You're on this journey. The plans are never perfect. You're going to detour a lot. You just have to know that that's how you own something. Be willing to be wrong, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But that was the ownership era right? If we then fast forward to the strategy era, right? And we I'm not going to talk as much about that, but the communications era, we're now in the era of communications. We have to be better communicators. Because if we're not better communicators, we're never going to get our strategies and our ownership over the line across the plate. What's it take to be a great communicator? I asked this in the room of 50 CFOs. And I'm down in Baja, California right now, and I'm, you know, most everybody speaks Spanish. I'm speaking English, and I'm I'm working on it. Like, hablo español un uno poquito. Un pequeño, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah right, exactly. But it, it means speaking the other person's language. The bare, bare minimum of being a great communicator starts with you have to speak the other person's language. I mean, if you think about it, but we forget this, and we forget that the CEO has their own language, which is different than a CFO's language.
1: Can you say more about that? The CFO's language versus yeah, just, CEOs? I think you're on the CEO's? Yeah.
0: Let me break down the three people we deal with, and I'll say more about it one at a time. Okay. But this CEOs have their own language, and the listeners are probably saying, yeah, my CEO and I speak different languages, right? Let's put a pin on that one. Boards have their own languages. Yeah, the mm. board's language is slightly different than a CEO's language, and I'm going to tell you why in a minute. But the language of boards are different. Slightly different. And the language of your direct team and your executive peers who aren't the CEO have a third language. It's all kind of English, if you will, or your, but it's all dialects of that. It's all accented. It's not a quite a different language. It's, you have to speak to them in their region and their dialect. Right. So what is a CEO's language? A CEO's language is we just got to make the numbers. We have to make decisions fast. You know, why do we have so many people in this company? <laughs> Why can't, what's our cash flow? Yeah, right. Why can't we be more productive? So the 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 cartoon that I threw up on this dinner was that classic Far Side cartoon where there's a dog and the owner, and like, here's what humans say to dogs. Here's what dogs hear. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you've seen this. Maybe people haven't. But the human speaking, speaking, and the dog. The Far Side cartoon says, "Blah blah 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 Ginger. Blah 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 Ginger." Right. And I just remember that because. As CFOs, we're saying so much. We say way too much. We go Uh into too much detail. We do rows and numbers of spreadsheets. And we think that everyone's hearing us because we're speaking our language, not theirs. And what are they hearing? Blah, 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 revenue. Blah, 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 cash burn. Everything in between, they've tuned out. They're listening for those things, especially at a board level. At a board level, it's even worse. How many meetings have you been into where they're like, you get the feedback after the fact. You've got to be more crisp. You were droning on and on. What we really want to know is revenue growth. Took you 15 minutes to get to revenue growth. It took you another 15 minutes to get to the five metrics that matter. All we really want to know is cash burn. Can you speak quicker? Because they're going, blah, 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 blah. What's our runway? Blah, 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 blah. What's our revenue growth? Well, if you know that's what they want to hear, then speak to them that way. Design your whole language for that when you present to them, and it will be different. So I hope
1: that makes sense. It does. And I think half the battle is just recognizing who your audience is and what language they're speaking. It's like you can't walk around with a hammer thinking everything's a nail. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Reduce burn, extend runway, do more with less. Operational efficiency. These are all catchphrases that we know all too well because of the headwinds business leaders face in today's growth environment. Growth is now a battle, not a breeze. While teams are on the front lines fighting every day for top line yardage, there are hidden savings opportunities right beneath their feet. That's where Tropic comes into play. Their procurement platform brings order and process to a historically decentralized and chaotic business function, purchasing and supplier management. Tropic serves as the front door for procurement that your entire company will want to use. By combining intake forms, pricing benchmarks, approval workflows, and supplier management all in one place. Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. When you pour blood, sweat, and tears into revenue growth, doesn't it make sense to protect what you have fought for? Visit tropicapp.io slash metrics to learn how modern businesses are controlling spend to extend their runway. Your board will thank you. Your budget will thank you. Your bottom line will thank you.
0: The very first step in communication of who is in the room, who is in the room, is it an all company meeting with all employees and all execs? The language you use is going to be different because you're trying to influence the whole room. Is the room just your CEO and your execs or your e-staff meeting, your leadership team meeting? The language you need to use is different there. Is it mostly the board, your CEO and you? The language you're going to use is slightly different there. Who's in the room? What are they listening for? you actually need to ask yourself these questions going into any communication, because here's the thing, CJ. As a CFO, you have all those unique insights. You have all the detail. And therein lies the problem.
1: The problem is you have too much detail. Yeah, it's, it's not that I'm looking for more. It's that I don't know what which points to pick out. Well, that's because most of us aren't starting with the end in mind is what is it they want to hear. I can think of a pretty recent example in my own life where I was presenting the January month-end metrics three different times, three different audiences. First one was e-staff, so all the CEOs' direct reports. Second time was at the board meeting last week. And third time was actually to the engineering team. They brought me in to do kind of like a SaaS 101, but also go over the metrics. But I had to start with a different point in mind with each one of them. So I started for the e-staff meeting with, top line ARR and customers. For the board yep. meeting, I started with cash burn. And for the engineering team, I started talking about new product line revenue. So it was all the same deck, it was all the same data set, but I had different starting points. Perfect, because you just took my framework and you made it
0: better and you're more of a natural at this than most. That example was perfect. But now, CJ, I'm gonna ask you, imagine if you didn't do that. Imagine if you use the same deck for all three audiences how it would have only served one audience, it would have flopped the other two. Or it would have been, not flopped, but it would have been a lot less influential and impactful because you would have been interrupted a lot and you would have been asked to get to the point. But I think you, you, you're you more of a natural at this than most, maybe, but that was a great example because there there you have it. You had to take the same deck and communicate it three different ways, three
1: different times. I'm trying my best. I wouldn't say I'm a pro, but I, I did look at it, though, that the tone had to be different. It wasn't just what the order of the data points. But like for some people, you're trying to rally them up and get them ready for the next month. For other people, you're trying to reflect and stand back on how something historical went. And for the other people, you're trying to just explain how a business model works. So it's a little bit different.
0: So the framework for everyone listening is just take those steps before you do the presentation. Ask yourself the questions. Who's in the room? What is it they want to hear? And if you can just use that framework, and then tailor your communication. Give it a shot. You will find, like CJ and I have found, that it is super effective to slow down, craft your message for your audience, and then deliver it, and you'll have a much better time of it.
1: The person who actually pushed me to think about this most differently and it was more for the third realm of like talking to employees about it was olivier adler cfo of shippo who we had on the podcast and i asked him like how he spent most hours of his day and he was saying that he spent like an hour preparing just to talk to the product team and i was like hmm i wonder if that's a good use of your time he said that is the most impactful block in my whole week because i'm helping shape how they think about how we make money as a company and I can't just walk in there with the same deck that I did to the East staff. Like that would be a total shortcut and they're probably going to come out of it. Like this guy's not even speaking our language. And so now I've always same. thought if I have something on my calendar to talk to the rest of the team, that's not like a throwaway block where I can just show up and riff on it. Like I have to actually do my homework and study. I actually felt guilty on a couple sessions. I thought back in the past where I just showed up, like, I'm going to wing it. I'm just going to talk about our metrics. I'm going to talk about how I want to talk about it, but Those people probably walked away and probably heard, blah, 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 revenue. I got to change it up. This is a great segue into
0: the next framework, which I've called different things in the past. But it's called this Islands of Safety Communication Framework, which melds hand in hand with this, right? Okay. I used to deliver this as Islands of Safety. And there's, there's four components to this talk. And I learned it when I was um, doing media training before one of our IPOs. We brought one of the best world-class media trainers. I was terrible at doing all this. So I'm I'm trying to condense this and pay it forward. Your islands of safety are three statements and only three statements. That's the S. Your three pieces of evidence or less that go under each S, each statement. That's your E. Your conclusion then you got to wrap it up and actually say what you said at the beginning of your statement to prove that your statement was right, and then the last—that's the C—and the last S is shut up and be silent to let them absorb it. That's the hardest one, Jen. Shut for- this, this is a great communication framework when you can practice it. Now here's here's the beauty, and you're gonna you're gonna laugh at this. I didn't lead with this. The punchline is it's. I've done this two or three of my clients. They love it. They're using it. It really is impactful when when you also do with who's in the room. And one of my clients turns to me and says, Jim, it's a sex talk. (laughs) I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you're giving me a sex talk. And I said, huh? And he said, S-E-C-S, sex. I'm like, oh, I'm using that. I'm stealing that. So he took my framework and made it better. And here's the thing. When you say it's a sex talk, a leadership sex talk, people remember it. They really do. Because the whole thing is for people to remember the framework. So statement, three key statements or less. Three metrics, three pieces of evidence, the E, conclude with key insights or ask for a decision. And the hardest one is silence or shut up. Stop talking. Whatever you want to say, the S. Why? And I've learned this the hard way, and many of us learn this hard way. We can deliver something incredibly impactful. In fact, the best communicators deliver really, really small pointed pieces of insight, and then they let the audience digest it. By being silent, it lands with them. By continuing to talk, it doesn't. you got to let the audience digest
1: what you just said. I think that's good. There's a Katie Couric quote, because she's a famous interviewer, and she said, sometimes you got to let the silence do the talking. Silence is a great technique for negotiation, for communication,
0: for controlling the communication. Imagine you're on stage. We hear this all the time. The Katie Kirks of the world know this. A five-second pause when you're a speaker in front of a whole room full of people feels like three minutes or two minutes. But a five-second pause the audience feels like nothing.
1: Oh, it's different on each end. I never thought about it that way. It's so true. They're like, oh, finally, I get to think about what that person is saying. And you're like,
0: I've got to fill it. I've got to fill it. And that's where you start doing the ums and the ahs and you fill it. Just let five seconds be silent in the room. Practice it. It's like lifting weights. It's a muscle. Practice it in your E-team meetings. Practice
1: being silent for five seconds. Nothing bad can happen in a private room. That's true. How do you get more comfortable with the silence over time, though? Well, Well,
0: you don't stay silent for long, right? You only stay silent so you can get to your next island of safety, your next S, your next statement. And you want to have three statements that hold water, that keep you safe out of the shark-infested waters of everyone trying to shoot down your vision. Yeah. And you can then just bridge between the islands, you know, and you can connect the islands together. You can connect your statements together. And, and when you can make almost a puzzle out of this, of what do you want to say? What do you want your audience to remember? The human brain only remembers three things out of any talk. Trust me on this. Trust all the experts on this. You got to give those three things to them and not give 10 things to them. What are the three most important things you want your audience to take away and just be true to that? And then you'll
1: have another meeting some other time and do three more things later. I was an amateur boxer. I wasn't like anything special, but I could take a punch. And I remember my coach, Roscoe, he was awesome. He used to talk extremely slow in the corners and he would always say, I will never give you 10 things because I will have given you nothing. I will give you one thing to work on and one thing to keep in mind. That's it. But if I overload you with stuff, I've completely wasted the one minute we have between rounds. I love that. Now imagine how much, how many times we've overloaded our board, overloaded our CEO,
0: overloaded our team because we have so much data and so much
1: insights. It's, it's a natural thing for us to do. We do have this inclination to try to just show off our baseball card collection. And it's like, dude, just give me a couple of the zingers here. Two to three zingers is way better than a spreadsheet full of numbers. Yeah, but
0: what am I going to do with all this data? You won't know I have it, Jim. You're going to have to have another meeting. And that's, <laughs> right? And that's the beauty. Until they start repeating what you say and what the key insights are, that's why you spend the hours. like of All this data, what are the three things I want to change the room on? That's really hard to do. Steve Jobs always said the hardest thing to do is to make something simple. The yeah. most difficult thing to do is to make a product dead simple. The easiest thing to do is is to make a product really difficult with lots of buttons and lots of complexity. We've seen those products, all these features, and I'm not really sure where to start. And iPod had one screen and one thumb wheel. That was it way back when. Simple wins. Well, but you know what? Simple is super
1: hard. What's the one thing you want them to do or remember? Super hard. Do you coach your clients to actually write down the one to three things you want people to remember before they go in? Should you start with that before you write your speech or should you come out from the end? Like, do you start with that in mind? That's the homework. That's, we do this a lot. I go over the framework.
0: Now we kind of brainstorm. They go off and they come back with our islands. They test it. You know, I poke holes in the islands, practice a couple times. Okay, you need, you need to be more crisp on your pieces of evidence. You need a better bridging statement. Look, this takes months and years to be good at, but it's like lifting weights or boxing. You just have to start practicing it. And when you get this technique down, you will become better at it. You know, just by practicing, you'll become better at it. And you'll get the feedback that, wow, you showed up differently that time. I've seen this in practice where some of my clients are like, this is great. You know, I got the feedback that I showed up differently. And what was that feedback? It's like, well, you were more crisp. You were you, know, you were on message. Whatever that means, just keep doing that. And when you're not on message, you'll also get the feedback that, you know, you got off track. It's like, okay, we need to work on bridging back to our next island. We need to work on connecting the islands together. You know, because what most groups do, what most teams do, they love to go down rabbit holes. Just a maze of tunnels underground that you get lost. Teams, humans do this all the time. When you can have an island of safety going in to a team meeting and you can get people back and bridge them back to the things that really matter, that's when you can be a leader. You can actually name the fact that we're down a rabbit hole and that's not really a priority that we need to be talking about. Can we get back to a key priority? And you take a leadership position and say, well, what's really most important in this conversation is X, Y, or Z. Your bridging statement was what's really most important is blank that's your bridge back to your one of your islands because if you designed them right then you can almost bridge back to any one of your islands on um, like it works every time when you hear your words coming back to you from within the organization you know you're you're creating impact it's the best feeling in the world when you say things seven times seven different ways using islands of safety And all of a sudden you hear
1: your own words coming back to you from within the organization like months later, like, okay, it's working. I had that out of body experience the other day where someone said like an entire phrase back to me that I've been trying to drive home and they said it just the way I'd said it. And I was like, Hey, who said that? I was like, wait, I said that. And you just said it back. I was like, it's working. It's, it's, it's out there. It's its own organism now.
0: But that's what, if you think about the best leaders out there, the best CEOs, the best communicators, this is what they do. Mm. They influence with words. Now, what we have to do is influence with words, but in the mission of doing it with data and finances right? and leading good decision-making. So we have all this other data underneath. We got to rise above it, find the right words to deliver the data, find the right words to deliver the insights,
1: find the right words to deliver the decision-making that we need for that moment. Jim, we've touched on a lot of things here and maybe gearing towards a close, I do want to get your opinion on what era you think we're in now with CFOs? I know you touched on, and it was probably over a 20, 30 year period, how it's changed, but I just wanna get your take on what the job requires to be done really well at this juncture and where we are in the world and kind of where you see it going. Do you think we're on the edge of another era or where are we? Most good to great CFOs or heads of finance
0: own the numbers, own the model. Most are learning how to be more strategic. And we've just dipping our toe in the water on how to how to communicate for impact, how to actually use a really bad muscle that we haven't lifted in years on how to use language and communication to deliver influence and insights, insights and influence. And until we actually learn how to communicate, because we're already pretty good at strategy or getting better, we already know everything about the numbers, we got all the tools. Until you actually accomplish communication and language. That's the era we're in. If you want to take it to the next level, figure out how to influence with all the insights you have, with the right language, with everything we talked about today, and you'll you'll see your
1: career take off. I love that because everybody seems to be focusing now on the tools you can use, the different, you know, technical processes, how to get all vendors under one roof. And it's more about the the bytes than the bits or whatever the saying is. And I like how you're bringing it back to just communicating more clearly that that's what gets to the top and in, in any position. There you go. Jim, this has been a masterclass from the King of Frameworks. I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, I'm not
0: sure I'm the King of Frameworks, but that's great.
1: Yeah, you, You're on my Mount Rushmore
0: for whatever it's worth. All right, good. I'll leave you at the last one and and I'm kind of playing with it.
1: So if it resonates Great. If it doesn't it, you're like a stand-up working on you, you're trying to get a 10-minute segment down. You're trying to tighten it. If it works, no, of course correct. Whatever, you know. But I'm gonna I'm gonna light lay,
0: lay it out there and course correct later. But I I said in front of this room the other night, you know, you are the captain of three ships. And I let that pause and I say something because I'm one thing like, what's this CFO talking about? What do you is he on drugs or whatever? You're the captain of three ships. Because I realize it's Everything that we're talking about today, relationships come first. The relationship has to come first for trust. Partnerships have to come second. That's the partnership with your CEO and your board. We have to focus on working on that partnership, which relationship has to come first. Partnership, Batman and Robin partnership. We have different skill sets. And then leadership has to come third. There are three different behaviors, three different styles. But you have to work on relationships, partnerships before you can
1: have true leadership. You're the captain of the three chair. I'm the captain now. Jim, thanks. And I I hope to make you a a recurring guest here. We've had you twice. And and maybe before you're in, we can get you on for the third time.
0: I have a dozen more frameworks for you. We only
1: went through a few. So maybe we'll we'll do this for you. Keep them coming. Keep them coming, baby. All right. Thanks, Jim. Roll the credits, producer Natalie. Run the Numbers is part of the Turpentine Podcast Network. It is produced by Natalie Torn and edited by Justin Golden. Album artwork by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. If you made it this far, please give us five stars. I really need this.